The Duty of Women, Chapter 5. Anne was pregnant. She was eating apples by the pound and her face was rounder, but any softness in her expression was not echoed by her temper. The legislation to make Henry the leader of the church in England was still going through Parliament and as far as we knew, no marriage had happened. Thomas told me that he suspected they had married privately but could not make it public as Henry still happened to be married to Catherine. So Lady Anne was still uncertain and three months pregnant with Henry's child. She took it out on everyone. One afternoon I was playing the lute, a soft and gentle Benedictus by Isaac, to lull her and the baby. She sat back in her chair with her eyes half closed. All at once the atmosphere changed she sat straight upright and pointed straight at me. Cat, how dare you? I stopped, confused by her sudden accusation. How dare you play that lute? It is desperately out of tune. Every note hurts my ears. I cannot bear it. You would imagine that you, of all people, might have some musical intuition and avoid this assault. She got up from her chair and strode over to me, grabbing the lute from my hands and throwing it on the floor. It crushed and splintered. I was dumbfounded and near tears. That lute was mine and my dearest possession, and she had destroyed it. Yes, I could use the lutes that were in the cupboards of the court, but they didn't have the mellow tone, the silken feel of the wood that my own had. That is the trouble with all of you. You make me suffer. You do not help me as you should. Pourquoi jumped up and started barking. He barked loudly at the window, then turned and ran up to me, snarling at my skirts. Thomas Wyatt looked at me concernedly and made to pick up the little dog. He took him, holding him at arm's length, and went to the door. How dare you, manhandle, pourquoi? Anne screamed at him. Put him down at once. Thomas put the dog down, stepped back and bowed his head. He knew Anne and he knew that arguing her when she was like this had no point. I, however, was not as wise. My lady, I am sorry, but the lute was in tune. I knew that what I said was true. But it was not in tune for me, cat, and you are supposed to be my musician. 
I ate you, always creeping about, and you are too friendly with Thomas Wyatt. Don't think I haven't seen you skulking in corners. All the ladies were transfixed by the scene, watching Anne intently as she berated me. That is it. You are not fit to be a musician. Leave me. I never want to see you again. I felt anger rise within me. That is unjust. I have served you loyally. And what am I to do now? Live on the streets? Be a spy for Thomas Cromwell, Anne shouted. You are one already. I ate you. I started to cry. I felt as if she had hit me in the stomach. It was the intense physical pain of being attacked. I was defenceless, paralysed by the shock of what had happened. Shaking, I stood there looking at her. She couldn't do this to me. She couldn't hurt me so terribly. Staring at me, she saw that I was crying. I curtsied shakily and made for the door. I thought that I would never see her again. I was telling myself that it was for the best, that I couldn't serve someone who hurt me like that and that Will and I would find a way to survive. I went to pick up my loot, then remembered its mangled remains were on the floor. Slowly, I walked through all of the ladies to the door. I remember that their faces were cold. They did not feel anything for me. Another servant that could be summarily dismissed. I opened the door and walked through it. There were two guards on the other side and I passed them without a glance. I got into the next chamber before I really broke down, sinking onto the floor and weeping. What was I to do now? My relationship with Will was up and down. I had lost my loot and with that my means of earning a living. And I had lost all connection with the court. I sat with my skirts spread out on the rushes and sobbed for everything I had lost. Here, cat, come here. Thomas Wyatt was standing there, his hand outstretched. Hush now, come with me. His eyes were warm and full of concern. I felt stupidly grateful to him for his humanity, but my pride had been deeply hurt. Go back to Lady Anne, Thomas. It would do you no good to be with me. We are too close, she says. He pulled me up and gently used his hand to wipe my tears from my face. Then, as delicate as a breath, his lips brushed mine. Being hurt, I felt his affection warming me and I welcomed it. But he was a courtier. He would hurt me like Anne had. Don't stay here with me. Get back to your lady. He shook his head and smiled. I won't go back without you, cat. I started to protest, but he shushed me. Lady Anne has sent me, cat. I stared at him in disbelief. You heard what she said, Thomas. She doesn't want to see me again. He took my face in his hands. You know what she's like, cat. She is so scared and her temper is frayed. She lashes out like an animal at bay. And then, minutes later, she regrets it. She is waiting for you in her privy chamber. Please come with me, cat. She is calling for you. She doesn't want me. She just wants someone she can shout at. Thomas kissed me again on the lips. For a moment he lingered 
And then he said quietly, No, cat, she trusts you. You are not one of these court ladies who would stab her in the back as soon as Henry tires of her. She thinks I'm a spy for Thomas Cromwell, I said, unwilling to be brought round. She doesn't. She admitted to me just now that she didn't think that. Yes, you are his protégé, but why should that be a problem? Soon he will make King Henry head of the church and she will become queen. He took my hand and spoke beseechingly. Please, cat, come and see her. For me, I allowed him to lead me through the chamber, back to the door and past the guards. I followed him with all the eyes of the ladies watching me, not acknowledging them, my head held high. Then we were in Anne's privy chamber. She was lying on the bed, her face buried in the pillow. Her silken skirts were crumpled and her hood was crooked. Thomas shut the door. Cat is here, my lady. She has agreed to come and talk with you. There was a sniffle of tears coming from the bed. I will leave you now. Thomas bowed and went to the door. No, I cried. I didn't want him to leave us alone. He held up his hand and spoke firmly. Cat, I must go. Lady Anne wishes to see you alone. He opened the door, gave me a small smile and left. I stood beside the bed for some minutes, watching the huddled figure lying there. Outside, there was the hum of the courtiers' voices, some laughter, but within the room it was almost silent, except for the muffled sounds of tears. At last her head rose from the pillows. She turned and looked at me. Her eyes were red and puffy, her cheeks tear-stained. She looked a world away from the grand lady she was. Rather, she was like a little girl who had had a temper tantrum. I waited. Cat, come and sit beside me. She sat up and patted the bed. I was hurting too much. How can you expect me to do that, my lady? You've told me you hate me. Anne's face crumpled. Cat, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. You know, sometimes when passions stir inside me, I cannot help it. I hit out at people. I do it to the king even. And sometimes he runs from me because he cannot stand it. I stood stiffly beside the bed, refusing to sit down. Anne flinched at the sight of my face and started to cry again. I would not go to her. At that moment, I wanted nothing more than to be away from her, this woman who had wounded me so badly. Cat, have I hurt you? Please don't say I have. I hate myself. I sighed. I'd seen her like this with other people, but she'd never attacked me before. No wonder her emblem was the falcon, for she was fierce. Please, cat, come here. Have some wine. I shook my head. No, I don't want anything. Her face was desolate, utterly miserable. Cat, I will buy you the best loot in all of England. I will have a master craftsman to make it, and I will tell him to make you two, so that you have one for ear and one for home. 
I turned to her, tears pouring down my face. You think that would make it all right? You're rich now and you think you could buy me? I always believed in you. You talked about the equality of people before God and I thought that you valued me as a person in spite of the difference in our rank. But you don't really believe that, do you? Queen Catherine may hold old-fashioned ideas, but she would never have treated me like that. I thought that Anne would jump on me for mentioning Catherine's name, but she didn't. She looked down at her hand, covered in rings, except for the all-important gold wedding band. Then she started talking, very quietly, almost to herself. She was brought up to this. She has the family, the tradition, the power, all behind her. She can afford to be kind. But me? I have no one at my back. My family will support me for long as the king stays sweet. The French will do the same. But if I lose a king, then they will be turning their backs. And it will not be long before they are ordering assassins to find me. She sounded so bleak that despite my anger, I could not help but interrupt. No, my lady, they would not do that. They esteem you highly. Anne wiped her eyes and looked directly at me. So long as the king loves me, cat, so long as he loves me, but he does love you, I said, aware that I didn't sound very certain. Yes, for now he loves me, but will he love me tomorrow? That is why I have to marry him, have a son, establish a new church, all in five minutes. If I can do that, then I will be safe. But you can see I am impatient. I don't know how much time I have, and at night I don't sleep. For the thoughts that race through my head. That is why, Cat, I was so unkind. Your lute was out of tune just a little. I wanted to tell her that it was her hearing that was out of tune. But my returning good sense stopped me. Normally, Cat, that would not offend me. I know how to be gracious. I knew I had to assent to this. Yes, indeed, my lady, you have been very gracious to me. But, Cat, when I haven't slept, and I am wondering when he will marry me, the slightest scratch, the smallest squall, brings my panic to the surface. I feel like my head has been taken over by it. I cannot help it, Cat. Please believe me. She made a regretful face at me, like a small girl who didn't know what she was doing. I had to forgive her. The thing was, daughter, she was not a bad woman. Passionate, intelligent, more principled than all those around her. But she was playing a dangerous game. And it told on her. Yes, it told on her. In due course, two beautiful lutes arrived for me. One made of you and one of the still-scented rosewood. The rosewood lute 
had a wonderful mellow tone, and I kept it at court, where I could serenade lovers and intriguers. The you, more serviceable, stayed at home, where I used it to try out compositions and occasionally to play for the household. Will and I lived more or less contentedly. We were intimate sometimes, but less often than before. We were often tired, and our hearts were full of what was happening at court. We wanted a baby, but one didn't seem to be coming. We were sitting in the kitchen one day, drinking small ale and eating fresh baked bread, when he asked me about my courses. Were you not due this week, Cat? Has there been no sign? I was surprised. I didn't think he was that involved with my cycle, but I had to disappoint him. There was nothing till this morning. I was just a few days late. He put his arms around me and kissed me briefly on the mouth. It will happen soon enough, my cat. Maybe it is good that it has not happened yet. The king's great matter has preoccupied me for so long, but soon he will be married. And we can get back to a normal life. Imagine it, cat. We can have our own house with a small plot at the back for herbs. On sunny evenings, we can walk down by the river, sometimes go to a fair. We will have a good life, cat. I promise. The truth was, although Will and I wanted children, we didn't at that point. Will's dream of our own house didn't call me then. I had served queens. It felt like a step downwards to serve my own husband and children. Of course, Will was definite that I could do as I pleased, but I had seen often enough what happened to women when babies arrive, and I didn't want it. Not then. Don't feel that we didn't welcome you when you arrived, daughter, despite the difficult circumstances of your birth. But we wanted to build an ordinary stable life for you to grow up in, not a life dogged by plots, religious disputes and hurried love affairs. We wanted what Tom and Joan had had, a life of love and hard work. The only problem with that was, as with all ordinary people, their their lives were dictated by forces greater than them. When the sweating sickness came to London, Joan could not leave for the country as the moneyed classes did, and Tom had had to follow his master and live away from his family. Sometimes it seemed that no matter what you had or where you were born, an ordinary stable life was only a pleasant dream. Nobody knew exactly when Anne and the King were married. It was sometime in the first months of the new year, and it was before the legislation had passed through Parliament to enable Henry to do as he wished. But he knew he could not afford to wait until then. Anne's pregnancy was beginning to show, and she was alternately furious and exultant in mood. The king treated her with exaggerated courtesy and would not gainsay her, no matter how unreasonable she was being. He saw her belly, and he knew that she was carrying his heir. Nothing could be allowed to upset her or cause any problems in the pregnancy. And by Easter, the formalities had been completed and Henry acknowledged Anne as his queen. 
He's told Queen Catherine she will be called the Dowager Princess of Wales. Lady Jane Seymour whispered to me, Lady Willoughby told me, but Queen Catherine will not accept that title and expects all her staff to call her Queen. Jane and I still referred to Catherine as the Queen. We had served her for so many years and respected her greatly. We could not change the habits of a lifetime in five minutes. Of course, when anyone else was around, we did not talk of Queen Catherine, but when we were alone, we did. We remembered her dignity and her kindness. Life had been so different then, without the screaming matches, but also without the passion. For the king and his new queen were overwhelmingly, crazily in love. And now they no longer had to hide. They kissed and flirted in front of everyone. Henry would tease Anne about her status as a marquise and tell her that he was simply her poor servant, whereas she was so very wealthy. And all in your own right, madam. He grabbed her hand and kissed it longingly, staring into her eyes. These newlyweds ignored their most powerful and respected courtiers, advisers and families. They had waited more than four years for this and now it was all opening up in front of them. It was as if they were both twenty. But had they forgotten? Henry was in his forties and Anne had passed her thirtieth birthday. There was no time to waste. So, at Easter, Anne went to Mass as Queen in cloth of gold. Just as Catherine had been, she was prayed for and deferred to. No one in the land could touch her now. By Whitsuntide, Anne was six months pregnant, but there was one more ceremony to go through before she could withdraw and rest before the birth of her baby. It wasn't enough that Queen Anne was now acknowledged as the king's wife. She must be crowned and anointed, just as he and Catherine had been at the beginning of his reign. I tell you, daughter, I have never seen such a display on the Thames as when Queen Anne was carried with the tide from Greenwich to the Tower of London. There were hundreds of craft, about 100 larger boats, including Anne's own barge, the King's barge, the Lord Mayor's barge, and the barges that the lesser ladies and servants were carried in. Then there were over 200 smaller boats, all tagging alongside. I was in one of these with Thomas Cromwell and his household. As a musician, I was not part of the new Queen's retinue, but in Thomas Cromwell's barge, we were able to come close to the royal barges and see what I couldn't have seen if I'd been crammed in behind or one of the thousands of people lining each bank of the River Thames, children on their father's shoulders, women standing on tiptoe, all to catch a glimpse of their new queen. She's big with child, Cromwell observed. The rich red-gold gown she was wearing did not conceal her growing belly, rather it emphasised it. It was her triumph. Helped on by some ladies, she took her seat in the main body of the vessel, underneath a canopy bearing her coat of arms. Cromwell commented wistfully, I remember when my Lizzie was pregnant. She was sick all the time. She could not have borne the motion of the water. Cromwell looked very sad. 
His wife, whom he had adored, had been taken by the sweating sickness four years ago, followed soon after by his two daughters. Only his son Gregory remained, sitting near the front of the barge now, shouting and singing along with the king's musicians. That was one reason why Cromwell had been so kind to Will and to some of the other young men in his household. Apart from Gregory, they were his only family now. Will she get through all the ceremonies? Will asked, being so great with child. He looked at me, maybe hoping that I would soon be in the same situation. I smiled tensely at him, and he squeezed my arm apologetically. Soon, cat, soon, he whispered. Cromwell smiled cynically and clapped Will on the shoulder. She will get through every ceremony, that one. She will get through anything to get what she wants. I knew Cromwell was right, and now she was so close to being an anointed queen, she would not falter. Daughter, I will be frank. I have never liked the Tower of London. It was dark and inconvenient, unlike the lovely Greenwich Palace. Even then, before King Henry's murderous sprees, it was associated with death. The little princes who vanished 50 years ago while held there, the mad King Henry VI killed in his sleep, the young Earl of Warwick killed for no other reason than his royal blood, but it was a royal palace as well as a fortress, and the tradition was that the king or queen to be crowned would spend the night before the coronation there. Actually, Anne was going to stay there for two nights, closeted with the king, wanting his consort to be housed magnificently and with all due honour he had ordered the renovation of the king's apartments. But still, it was surrounded by high walls and the pleasure gardens were sparse and neglected. When Anne looked out of her window, all she would see was a grey fortress built in an earlier age and weathered by many wars. Did she enjoy that time with Henry, worshipping her every move? Or was she plagued by sleeplessness and fear? Knowing her, I thought it was probably both. She was eager to be recognised as queen, eager to change the things she knew needed changing. But she was leading a lion by a silken rope daughter, and she knew it. I would not have been surprised if she had seen those nights out, wakeful and on guard. Although the king had been with her at the tower, he did not take part in the coronation itself. She carried all of that herself, brave, six months pregnant and triumphant. Will and I watched from the street, along with all of London. Some people were exultant, heralding a new beginning. Others said vile things about Anne, calling her the greatest whore in Christendom or the king's concubine. But whether you were for her or against her, the one thing you couldn't do was ignore her. On that day she dazzled. Her litter was open, carried by white horses. She shone inside it like a jewel in a satin casket. She was wearing white, which was shot through with gold, shimmering and catching the sunlight. Her coif was in the French style, white satin, crisscrossed with gold. Over it she wore a golden coronet. She was smiling and looking all around her. There were cheers. 
Some people were holding back, but she was pleased to acknowledge them. As I watched her, she suddenly sat up straight and looked directly at me. She waved for a moment and then made a motion of strumming a lute. Again, she smiled at me. Ever since she had attacked me and then wept her repentance, she had given me special attention. It was as if I was bound to her. Because I had forgiven her, she considered herself in my debt. In this way, she was very different from many other aristocrats. She had treated me appallingly, but she had recognised that and felt bad about it. And although I had been terribly hurt by her, in the end, it was easy to forgive her. Like Thomas Wyatt, I was enthralled by her. Cromwell was invited to the coronation. Some courtiers were reluctant to go, but not him. He would not turn this invitation down and the chance to move yet higher in the king's estimation. But his wasn't an uncritical eye. He told Will, who later told me, that when Anne prostrated herself in front of the altar, she looked as like a spinning top with her belly on the floor and her arms and legs splayed out like wings. But, he said, she behaved with dignity and some grace. Now she is in place and Cramner is the Archbishop of Canterbury. Let us hope we can proceed apace with reform. Lady Jane Seymour was less diplomatic. Like me, she loved the old Queen. Catherine of Aragon was in internal exile and it was as if she had never occupied the throne. But Jane remembered her. For Jane, Catherine was the only true queen and Anne Boleyn was indeed a concubine. There were others who agreed with her. Half the ladies of the court found some excuse not to be there, she told me. The king's sister, Mary, stayed away with her daughter, And I couldn't see the Duchess of Norfolk. They're refusing to acknowledge her. They will stay away from court until she falls from grace. It won't be long. I protested. Jane, that's an unwise thing to say. Don't speak to anyone except me in this way. You could be in danger. She's the queen now. Don't worry, I'm careful. You don't count, Cat. I smiled sarcastically. Yes, I know. I'm just part of the background. I didn't mean it like that, you know. I mean, I can trust you. She smiled at me, and for a moment her plain face looked almost beautiful. Did you know the king commented on my coronation gown at the banquet afterwards? He said that the green silk matched my eyes. I was so embarrassed. She blushed a deep red. I wondered if she'd ever received a compliment before. Just be careful, Jane. The king is in love with Anne, but if she catches him flirting with you, it will be you who suffers. He likes me, I think, but don't tell anyone else. I don't repeat what you say, Jane, but you should still be careful. I will, I promise. Jane clutched at my arm and suddenly whispered to me, Cat, you should have seen her coronation robes, that red... It made her look quite washed out. And then you know what happened. It was at the end of the ceremony when she was processing out. She couldn't see her feet with the baby bump and she trod on the hem of her robe. She pulled the gown up and it tore. 
Cat, it wasn't a large tear, but still. Oh, she carried on as if nothing had happened, and everyone was looking at her crown. Not many people noticed, but I did. It is an omen, Cat. I'm sure of that. That's just superstition, Jane. It wasn't an omen. Her gown was a touch too long. That was all. Jane wouldn't agree. I know you're against superstitions and saints and omens, but Cat, this means something. I am certain of it. I didn't challenge her. Lady Jane Seymour was very much a traditionalist. She wouldn't put herself in danger. She would always go along with whatever the king decreed. But for her, deep in her heart, she loved the old queen, the old religion and the old certainties.